Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 1st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi House advances a bill that would remove hurdles that prevent pregnant women from receiving timely prenatal care. Then, Mississippi continues to have one of the highest rates of sexually transmitted diseases, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Plus, advocates for post-secondary education are helping students apply for financial aid. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi House of Representatives passes a bill that could make it easier for women to get prenatal care during the early stages of pregnancy. Around two-thirds of births in Mississippi are covered by Medicaid, but getting approval for the coverage can take time. Presumed eligibility allows someone to go visit a doctor without having to wait for coverage to be officially approved. Dr. Anita Henderson is a pediatrician at the Hattiesburg Clinic. She tells our Will Stribling getting early care can be a huge benefit for both the parent and their future child. We are thrilled that the Mississippi House has passed presumptive eligibility for pregnant women. It will allow women to get that first OB appointment in a more timely manner. So hopefully we can address some chronic medical conditions, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, any other major medical condition, because we know that a healthy pregnancy is more likely to result in a healthy full-term baby knew that there was going to be that requirement of the first visit to take a pregnancy test, but then they also added in that um, income proof requirement. I think that was uh, a mistake, or is that a confusion over that, or a lack of knowledge of, of needing that going to cause delays when the goal of this is to remove delays? Right. So I think, I think they looked at what other states who are doing presumptive eligibility for pregnant women, what their um, bill status was, and kind of drew from that. I think that it, it should be a way for women to provide proof of income in a simplified manner so that they only would be required to provide proof of income and pregnancy and then have that full 60 days to kind of complete that Medicaid application, um, which is where we were missing moms. 
What else, you know, in the health space are you hoping to see come out of the legislature over the next few months? We're excited that the prior authorization bill passed in the Senate. So that will hopefully get families who need medications or services, those um, in a more timely fashion also. I think, obviously, we're looking at some form of full um, Medicaid care for working Mississippians. And so we're very excited that... uh, Speaker um, White has had some movement on this. I think we have a we have great leadership in the House Medicaid Committee. We have great leadership in the Senate Medicaid Committee. So I'm hopeful that we can move to increase access, increase health care for working Mississippians. That income clause spoken about requires an individual to prove they earn less than $29,000 per year to qualify for this early Medicaid coverage. That presumed coverage lasts for 60 days after the first prenatal visit, which lawmakers say should give the state's Division of Medicaid time to process paperwork. Republican Representative Missy McGee of Hattiesburg chairs the House Medicaid Committee and authored the bill. She says this measure could help reduce the state's high infant and maternal mortality rate. I feel great. We expected that we would have strong support from the House, but it's always good to see those numbers go up on the board. And I'm just very excited that it was overwhelmingly passed and we're going to send it over to the Senate and hopefully it will get the same um, approval over there. Just talk a bit about just the value and these women being able to get in and have these prenatal visits early uh, in terms of, of helping them and their babies. We know that it's very important for women to get that good prenatal visit um, in the first trimester, and that's really what the bill was um set to do is to help women get into the doctor during the first trimester to visit and discuss their health issues, to um, learn about the things they need to do to take care of themselves and their baby, and hopefully um, carry that baby to term and deliver a healthy baby and give that baby the best opportunity for a, you know, a healthy life. And now with this, this hurdle overcome, what are you, uh, you know, what are your top priorities for the next couple of months? What do you, what else are you looking to get done? So we're pleased that we were able to get the presumptive eligibility passed because we believe that takes care of a woman in the early days of her pregnancy, and it um, pairs really nicely with the bill that we were able to pass last year, which provided 12 months of postpartum coverage for um, women. So, you know, we are number one in infant mortality and number one in maternal mortality. Those are lists that we know we have got to get off the top of. That's unacceptable. And so now I think we have really demonstrated our commitment to moms and babies by um, providing the front end of the pregnancy all the way to 12 months postpartum. And I hope that we can really make a difference in um, and getting off those lists that we do not want to be at the top of. That's Representative Missy McGee of Hattiesburg. The bill now must wait for a committee assignment in the Senate to move forward. Coming up, STD rates in the state among the highest nationwide. What's needed to combat the problems? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. At Mississippi Public Broadcasting, we tell local stories that matter. Educational and entertaining television, radio, news, and podcasts. We have something for everyone. So tune in and enjoy all we have to offer every day. MPB, your stories, our mission. What's happening at the Mississippi Legislature? Tune in each week to Add Issue on MPB Think Radio. 
I'm Michael Guidry. Join us as we take an inside look at the legislative session and get perspectives from both sides of the aisle. At Issue premieres Friday, February 9th at 6.30 p.m. on MPB Think Radio. Then here at Issue every Friday during the session. And subscribe to the At Issue podcast so you can listen anytime, anywhere. MPB's At Issue. Tune in, Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi has the highest rates of sexually transmitted diseases in the nation. In 2022, the state ranked highest for cases of gonorrhea, second highest for chlamydia, and sixth highest for babies born with syphilis. That's according to new data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Doctors say improved funding for public health is one of the most effective ways of pushing those rates back down. Dr. Thomas Dobbs is the dean of the John D. Bauer School of Population Health at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He tells our Mike McEwen lack of awareness is partially to blame for these high case rates we have seen you know, a gradual increase. And so people are at higher risk because we've seen a gradual increase in the number of people with these, these diseases. They're not getting treated. And I think that's the main thing is these are curable, these are treatable. And a lot of times people carry these asymptomatically. So there's no symptoms and people can spread them. What we need to do is make sure that everybody who is sexually active gets tested and treated because it wouldn't really be hard if we could find all the cases to you know, really beat back this explosion in sexually transmitted diseases. What might be, I guess, some barriers or challenges to getting more folks tested? Is it maybe fear of the stigma surrounding it? Yes, of course. I think some of it's going to be the stigma, but some of it is is, is the awareness of risk. Because most, most people get tested when they have symptoms, and certainly we do see a lot of people with symptoms of sexually transmitted diseases. Um, but, you know, some of them, though, can be really subtle and, and hard to know, and they'll just manifest later. So that's one of the issues. One of the issues is, too, is expense. You know, people don't want to go to the doctor if they don't have to. I get it. Co-pays are high, and Mississippi has a large number of people who do not have insurance. But fortunately, we have a lot of options for people who can get testing for free. You know, the health department does free testing. Um, I, I work at the Crossroads uh, Sexual Health Clinic at the Medical Mall in Jackson, and we do free testing and also express personal health at the Medical Mall and other places. So there are numerous options that are going to be either covered by your insurance or no cost at all, regardless of of insurance status. So it's really important for folks just to go in and get tested so you can know for sure and make sure that you're going to, you know, get rid of whatever might be going on. To what extent do you think sexual education or maybe a lack thereof plays a role in a state ranking as highly as it does with sexually transmitted infections? You know, that is a huge challenge. And we know that different school districts have different approaches. You know, Mississippi, the school districts pretty much decide what they will teach, and there's also some restrictions in law. In law, So there's only so many things that can be reviewed. And, you know, pretty much everybody eventually is going to have sex. And we know that, you know, actually the most people in, in the country, almost everybody is exposed to a sexually transmitted disease whether it's one of those mentioned here or human papillomavirus or, or others. So it's, it's extremely common, and we just need for people to know. We need kids to know. We need students to know as they're sort of growing up through, you know, you know adolescence and, and teen years to understand what the risks are so folks can know, you know, how to protect themselves, uh, to have, you know, um, proper sort of um, 
addressing their own, you know, their own maturity as they, as they go along, making sure that they're being safe, and and how to protect themselves. So these are things that we're not really empowering our kids with, so that they can make the best decisions and also know what risks are out there, so that they can avoid them. Is there anything that could be done from a public health perspective, maybe from the top down, to try and increase awareness? You were speaking earlier that in some instances, people carrying STIs might be asymptomatic. So is there anything that can be done, I guess, from the top down? Um, yeah, you know, I, I do think there are some things that would be very important. One of the challenges that we've seen, and, you know, I've worked in public health for many years and still do, is that we've seen a pretty significant decline in public health funding. You know, there's not really money out there for an awareness campaign, right? There's really not funding for that. We've seen significant cutbacks in state funding for public health and local funding for public health. One of the big challenges that we're having with with uh, STDs now is because the STD clinics and the sexual health clinics don't exist like they used to. Uh, because we've sort of we've moved away from a public health model to basically you know, sort of like an urgent care model or you know private care, and and those are just not the best places to deal with that sometimes because of the awareness, but also to the the expense. So I mean that would certainly be a, a way if we could invest to make sure that we had better awareness, and but also to everybody who has a voice needs to speak out because this is going to be something that's going to be impactful for, for generations if we don't move forward, especially when we talk about syphilis, which can have lifelong consequences and severe debilitating consequences for babies. Are there any other social determinants that might impact upon someone's likelihood to contract an STD? You know, something like transportation or maybe even education on the topic. Are there any others? You know, we certainly do see folks that are who are uh, resource-constrained at higher risk. Uh, the folks who have less access to care, less ability for transportation, housing insecure, those sorts of things. You know, kind of like a lot of disease processes, whether it's going to be a, a, a diabetes or obesity, you know, it does tend to track pretty closely with uh, with a lower degree of resources. So, yeah, I mean, it really does, it does really fall along those same sort of lines. And so if we can bring resources to folks so that they can get the help they need, it, it's it's something that's going to make make a huge difference. A lot of people don't have as much control over their lives as, as we would like, and, and um, even some folks don't have as um, control over you know their relationships. And it's just we need to do everything we can to make sure that they're as safe as possible, so that people can not have to have the bad consequences of these diseases. How do these numbers compare, maybe to the past five or ten years? Is it trending upward in Mississippi? Is it trending downward? And how does that compare nationally? So syphilis is absolutely trending up, and that, that's been a, a major concern because we know, you know, if people have syphilis that's untreated, it can go on to cause major heart problems, dementia, um, severe joint problems, that sort of thing. We know it can be deadly for, for babies and cause, you know, birth defects and all that. So that has really been concerning, obviously. Now, gonorrhea and chlamydia are about the same. We have a little bit of variation year to year. But we, we pretty much stay at the top of the list all the time. One of the problems with those, two is that they also increase risk of transmission of HIV and, and other diseases. So it's not just that they're a nuisance, but they can have severe issues in the sense of increased risk of, of HIV or even infertility and other problems. Dr. Thomas Dobbs is the former state health officer and is now a dean at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Coming up, the state FAFSA forms are available. What students and families need to know ahead. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
At Mississippi Public Broadcasting, we tell local stories that matter. Educational and entertaining television, radio, news, and podcasts, we have something for everyone. So tune in and enjoy all we have to offer. Every day, MPB, your stories, our mission. Join us in praise for Hallelujah, a celebration of Mississippi gospel. Featuring the Mississippi Mass Choir and other gospel artists and choirs on MPB television, Thursday, February 8th at 7 p.m. And tune in for a special companion radio documentary highlighting Mississippi roots and gospel. Featuring leaders from the gospel community on MPB Big Radio, Saturday, February 10th at 6.30 p.m. Watch, listen, and sing along. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The deadline for low-income students in Mississippi to file for the state's college financial aid has been extended by two months. Last month, reports of long wait times and technical difficulties prevented many from filing the two forms needed to apply for financial aid. Now students have two additional months to apply for the Higher Education Legislative Plan for Needy Students grant, also known as the HELP grant. Kirsten DeFore is Director of External Training and Partnership with Get to College. She says it's important for students who may qualify to take advantage of this extension. So the FAFSA is an acronym that everyone refers to and uses um, that stands for the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. So it's important to know that the FAFSA is just an application just like Students that um, complete admissions applications for college, this is that same kind of application process for the financial aid side of things. And so the FAFSA is sent to all of the colleges this year, it's 20, up to 20 different colleges that a student can send it to. And then what the colleges do from that is they take that information and potentially award various institutional or federal grants. And there's even some private scholarships that ask that the FAFSA be filed and um, information be sent to those scholarship providers as well. Is this a time of year when it's important to keep this in mind? Absolutely. So traditionally, the FAFSA opens on October 1st. So for high school seniors, it gives them plenty of time um, to complete it by any important deadlines that they may have by the college or Mississippi Office of Student Financial Aid. Um, For those students that are staying in-state, this year is a little bit of an exception. So the 24-25 FAFSA is for the 2024 fall spring 25 semester, summer 25. So it's the graduating class of 2025 is doing it for the first time. Then current students um, in college or those going back are renewing for the upcoming year. It had a delay. And so it didn't open until the very end of December, beginning of January, because um, due to federal legislation, the FAFSA has been completely changed. It has um, been simplified. It is um, a lot easier to complete on the contributor. So the student now um, invites their parent if they use parent information and the parent goes in and the vast majority of the information now won't have to be manually entered from a tax return or potential follow-up non-tax filer verification. All of that's done between two federal agencies. So now it it, um, allows for consent and approval for that information to be pulled directly from the IRS to federal student aid 
without the student or parent having to try and generally navigate a 1040. There, 1040. there are still a few exceptions there, um, but it is important to know that because of this delay that's only for this year due to these big changes that the FAFSA is now open and it's important to pay attention if there's any deadlines that the student needs to know about. So check with the colleges. They've got their own deadlines. And recently, um, Mississippi Office of Student Financial Aid pushed back their earliest deadline for it to be done until the end of June. So there is still time for students to do it, but they just need to be aware of if they need to be doing it immediately or if they can wait a few weeks um, and get their information collected for their uh, contributor parents. So this is basically a financial form that lets institutions know how much money Uh, how much income folks have, whether they can afford college without assistance or do they need assistance or applying for scholarships and so forth. So it's, it's a financial, as you mentioned, picture of that student. Well, it's a little bit of financial. It's a little bit of family size. I don't, I want to make sure that we don't deter those that don't have income from completing it. Um, And that's a really big myth when it comes to the FAFSA is that, oh, well, I didn't file taxes because I'm not required to because I um, receive disability and don't have income, um, that they can't file the FAFSA. And that's absolutely not true. Um, While it does ask for information for those that do file taxes to validate it from the IRS, it also validates non-tax filing status. And oftentimes we find those students who parent does not file taxes because not required to are the ones that need to fill out the FAFSA the most because they're going to be eligible for things like the Pell Grant, which is free grant gift aid from the federal government, but also they may be eligible for things like the HELP Grant, which is a need-based grant from the state of Mississippi, or they may be eligible for financial need grants from the colleges. And so it's making sure that they're maximizing all of the different options for paying for college because we know it takes pulling from a lot of different areas in order to pay for post-secondary and so we want to make sure that everybody knows that yes it does take into consideration household income from two years prior Um, so it's going to look at your 2022 taxes for this um, upcoming FAFSA or if you didn't file it's going to look at your 2022 non-tax filing status but it also takes into consideration family size even in the formula for the unit of measurement that comes out of it, which is called the Student Aid Index, which is brand new this year, it replaced the expected family contribution, um, you'll know that there's know that there's changes to it that adjust for inflation um, over the past few years that um, for income um, protection. So there's a brand new formula on the backside. So Federal Student Aid has actually announced that it's anticipated that over 13,000 more Mississippi students are going to be eligible for Pell Grant. You said this year is an exception. So how do students get this done that their information will be culled from the IRS or, or whatever needs to happen? Yeah, so the first thing that students and parents need to do, whether you're currently in college or you're a high school senior or you're listening to this as a mentor or someone who has a high school senior in the family, you need to make sure that the student has already created their username and password and that parents have already created their username and password before they log in. 
In the past, you could create a username and password, which is unique to every individual, and immediately log in. Well, with the changes from the IRS pulling that information over, it's increased security, which we all appreciate. And so it requires that the username and password for individuals with social security numbers be created at least three days before you log in to give consent and approval to start a FAFSA. And the great thing about the new form is that a student can be at school um, in Starkville and the parents can be living in Goodman and they don't have to be in the same place because it's individual forms now with the username and password. One other thing to note about this change is that now students whose parents do not have social security numbers are required to have a username and password, which is a brand new process. And there's a little bit of um, work that's going to be done around the system from federal student aid on that process. So it's, it's, it's kind of uh, working out the brand new kinks of it. But we anticipate hopefully very soon that that process also works. So that way, those students, whether currently in college or high school seniors, also know their parent needs to create an FSAID, where in the past they have not done that. Kirsten DeFore with Woodward Hines Education Foundation, the Our Get to College program. Thank you so much for uh, telling us what families need to do to get moving on this. We appreciate your time providing this information. Thanks so much for having us, and we're always happy to help. The U.S. Department of Education has just announced there will be delays in offers for federal financial aid, with some not expected until April. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.